Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we talk about world-famous boxing promoter Don King. Oh, hell yeah. And the two dudes he killed. <laughs> Don King is a, is a murderer? Yep. <laughs> you know, that's hilarious. I mean, that's not funny at all. I take it back. Hilarious. I mean, it's just hilarious because he's one of those guys that I sort of am fascinated by on some peripheral level, have no idea anything about him, sort of get the sense that he's despicable for some sort of mysterious reason. Uh-huh. But I figured it was because maybe he cheated people out of money, which I'm sure, I don't know what he did. Okay, so you're going to So tell this me. is going to be a big Don King day. Are you going to tell me all about his, his life and everything? Yeah, a big, big, huge chunks of it. Some uh-huh. overview. His life is really incredible. Uh-huh. And so, you know, we're going to be missing out on a couple things kind of after the 80s, uh-huh. you know, but we're going to really have a lot of stuff to talk about. Getting our little 30 for 30 on today, you know, <laughs> Muriel entering the sports domain. I'm, <laughs> I'm here for it. I mean, I know you do love boxing, but <laughs> you don't know anything about sports. I don't know anything about sports. The really, I mean, I like watching baseball. Yeah. And I went through a phase where I watched like a ton of classic fights that I just really enjoy. I do enjoy watching boxing. Yeah. I don't know why. I can't watch UFC. Yeah. I have a hard time with violence. Yeah. But for some reason, <laughs> boxing, like, there's just something. Well, about they have shiny sense. shorts and there's a lot of um, hugging. And then just, it's just like, there's yeah. two things it's punch and don't get punched. I, I think it just kind of makes sense to me. Uh-huh. And in a way, like baseball was kind of like that too Mm -hmm. i watch football and i just cannot understand what's happening and i just get tired and don't want to do it it's like whatever (laughs) yeah uh but i do i've always really enjoyed watching old boxing matches yeah (laughs) it's such a weird thing so yeah (laughs) i'm like super excited about this and i've actually watched we're gonna talk in depth about a few fights oh good don king promoting yeah and those are in particular like the ones that i've watched so it's really fun to learn more about them cool man this is gonna be awesome well before we get ready to rumble we do (laughs) want to welcome any brand new listeners to the podcast so great to have you and if you've been listening to us for a while now thank you for being with us on the ground floor if you're into what we do there are a few ways to support us you can join the murals murders patreon and get bonus episodes you can connect with us on social media you can leave us review on apple podcasts or you can share this podcast with the people in your life who you think would get a kick out of it yep that's right okay everyone remember this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are sensitive like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things please consider listening to a different podcast plus we'll probably end up doing a little cursing and joking so if you're sensitive to that turn us off all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no right okay (laughs) let's get started Well, I was going to tease you about maybe not knowing boxing.
boxing lingo, but I actually know almost nothing about boxing either. That makes two of us. <laughs> I did try to fact check a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I mean, obviously I did. <laughs> but sometimes, yeah. you know, when you're out here learning new things, you'll say some stupid, stupid crap. So yeah. just understand that that's part of learning we're he, all learning together it was like he bopped him in the grill <laughs> i will probably say things like that all right well i said i wasn't excited to hear about this but truth be told of course i'm excited to hear about boy this. i know you're excited i can tell you're excited you're literally rocking back and forth <laughs> shut up right now and start telling me a story all right so Don King yes. is arguably the most famous boxing promoter in history, yes. right? And like we said in the intro, boxing is this weird thing I'm sort of low-key into. I haven't watched a ton of fights or anything, but for a while I was into classic fights. Mm -hmm. And some of my favorite fights were promoted by Don King earlier in his career. Right? Oh, cool. So I'm super excited to do this episode yeah. and to learn more about the beginnings of that, right? Yeah. So just as a quick overview for those of us who haven't heard of Don King or maybe whatever, whatever. So Don King has promoted over 500 world championship fights and he was the first promoter in history to promote 23 world championship fights in a single year. Damn. He's promoted seven out of the 10 highest grossing pay-per-view fights in history. Yeah. Most of those uh, involved Mike Tyson. Right. He's a... Uh, you know, ear-biting maniac. Uh, <laughs> he has promoted most of the biggest career fights for Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Evander Holyfield, uh, Roberto Duran, and a uh, ton of other people. So just about every household name when it comes to boxing is Don King is behind their big fights. Right. They're yeah, yeah. right. Their biggest fights for yeah. sure. I mean, he's a a titan of an industry in the sense that like I don't even think I could name one other boxing promoter. Oh, I'm forgetting a guy's name cuz I'm awesome. But yeah. the there is one other boxing promoter that has grossed a lot more money. Mm. Um and he's still around, mm -hmm. but Don King is like obviously the household name, right? right? Um, he also like did other types of promotion. I'm not going to go into the whole list of everything he's done because yeah. it's pretty prolific. There's just so much. Yeah. Um, but he did stuff like in 1984, he promoted the Jackson 5's Jackson Victory Tour, which is basically the boys from the Jackson 5 doing mm -hmm. a reunion tour mm -hmm. right on the heels of Thriller being released. Oh, wow. So that tour grossed $75 million, which is around <laughs> $187 million in today's money. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. that was like... I'll, like it broke a lot of records at the time. Yeah, he's just like an, a, an accomplishment beast. Right, exactly. Um, the tour was choreographed by Paula Abdul, and Whoa. the tour was kind of a disaster for the Jacksons as a family unit. <laughs> oh, it was no. like the last time I believe they toured together. Oh, they God. had a huge falling out. Yeah. And Jackson was supposed to be like too much of a diva. You know, whatever. Everybody's Michael, mad. you mean? Yeah, Michael yeah. Jackson. Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess if Don King's involved, there's bound to be at least some fighting. There was a lot of fighting. Yeah. But King got Michael a lucrative deal to do two commercials for Pepsi in conjunction with the tour. So that was like him branching out to do 
branding for Michael Jackson. Well, one of those the commercials, the one where he caught on fire? Yes. Oh my God, Don King is behind everything. During the filming of the Pepsi commercial, a firework caught Michael Jackson's hair on fire and he suffered second and third degree burns all over his scalp. Oh. And that's actually the rumored beginning of his uh, prescription painkiller addiction. That's yeah. what people kind of believe it started. Yeah. So, you know, Don King's behind everything, man. Anyway, that's just like a sample of what he's accomplished in his life. Today, Don King is still kicking it at 90 years old. Really? He's still alive. Mm -hmm. He's worth about $150 million, and he lives with his family in Deerfield, Florida. So not in jail. No. But before all that, he was out in Cleveland, Ohio, killing folks. Okay. So, <laughs> hold on. One thing we have to say about Don King, he's one of the most recognizable people in pop culture history. Go ahead. Preach. I mean, he just, he looks like a maniac, yeah, right? Why? But describe him for people who don't know. <laughs> well, he's a heavy set black man with shockingly white hair that sticks straight up almost like Marge Simpson. Yeah, right. And it, it's like you got electrocuted Marge Simpson hair. Yeah. It's like kind of a kind of like an afro but just straight up and yes. like super raggedy up top. And I'm envisioning sort of like big mustache at certain eras. It was that. It was a lot of like jewelry, yeah, gold jewelry, right. diamonds, chains, tuxedos. A lot of flamboyant tuxedos. Really flamboyant tuxedos. Yeah. He has these crazy white chiclet teeth, you yeah, know, that right. are just out there. And he is known for saying the craziest things. Yeah. Here are some quotes. All right. Mm. Man, I've been to jail. It was hell in there, but I survived. They put me back. I'll come out again. I'm one of the world's greatest survivors. I'll always survive because I've got the right combination of wit, grit, and bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He says, uh, only in America, Don King can happen. Yeah. He says things like, I mean, he drops MFR a ton Uh and he says the N word all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some of these quotes are really intense. (laughs) He's like, I had a moment of religious epiphanosity. It's a great one. (laughs) Yeah. Epiphanosities. That's all I have, day in and day out. Yeah. I dare to be great. The man without imagination stands unhurt and hath no wings. This is my credo. This is my forte. He kind of like talks a little bit like a beat poet meets Uh like a revival preacher meets like, I don't know, a guy who really drops a lot of N-bombs. Well, he's kind of like (laughs) a, right. His persona is that of sort of a poetic prophet slimeball salesman. Yeah, right. And I'm kind of only familiar with him in the Mike Tyson era. Really? Yeah, I mean, in terms of his image and his public persona. Okay, yeah. So we're going to cover basically everything before that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Did he have his signature look down as a young man? No. Mm, okay. That didn't happen until he started working with Muhammad Ali. Oh, interesting. So okay. it happened when he was in his, I believe, mid-30s. Huh. So that was like a definitely a developed thing. Right. That was not in his wheelhouse. He's like, I'm with the, I, now it's time for me to step into the ring. Exactly. Yeah, I've okay. got to start showing up. <laughs> okay. So mm-hmm. before all that, 
Donald King started as a Depression-era baby born on August 20th, 1931 in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. So Donald's parents, Clarence and Hattie King, had six children before Clarence was killed in a steel plant explosion in 1941. Mm, yeah. So before the insurance money ran out, Single mother Hattie was able to move the entire family to a nicer middle class area. And then after the insurance money was gone, she baked and sold pies and bags of roasted peanuts. So in an attempt to help their mom boost sales, Donald and the other kids would put what they called lucky numbers in the bags of peanuts. Uh huh. So gamblers and people who like to play the local numbers game, which is essentially like an unregulated locally run lottery playing the numbers. Right. They would play the lucky peanut bag numbers for fun. Right. Oh, that's cool. And that used to boost the popularity of the peanut bags and the King family reputation among the gambling community. Oh, that's kind of cool. So they're not saying like we're running our own numbers internally with these peanut bags. Just saying like, Hey, I buy the peanuts. Hey, what's the number in the bag? Might as well play those today. Right. And a bunch of cute little kids are like, you know, fine. I want to start doing that right now. I know you. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> so Don King actually tried his hand at boxing in high school mm -hmm. and got his ass beat, right? <laughs> yeah. So he boxed at the 108 flyweight level four times in his whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, he went two for two and got knocked out in his last and final match. So after mm -hmm. getting knocked out, he was totally over it. He never <laughs> boxed again. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could see that. Yeah. So Don graduated in high school in 1951 at the age of 20 and briefly attended college before dropping out to run numbers in the illegal lottery in Cleveland full time. So mm -hmm. then he transitioned to running the numbers himself. Hell yeah. So Don King started racking up charges starting in 1951. He would be arrested over 30 times in the next seven years. All kinds of stuff. Battery, uh -huh. assaults stealing you know like all kinds of crazy stuff uh -huh. by the 1960s don was the biggest numbers boss in cleveland grossing fifteen thousand dollars a day which is around 140 oh my god it's around one hundred and forty thousand dollars. and is this all like organized black crime in cleveland well the numbers that he was running yeah We'll talk about this a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they're backed by the mob in Cleveland the that Italian was white. Yeah. Right. So there was Italian. So yeah. there's a lot of cooperation. So he wasn't outranking the mob. Sure. You know, he's under the mob. Got but he it. definitely was making like some of the most, I think he was making the most money at the time out of anyone running numbers games. Yeah. That's so cool. And he's grossing that much money, but that's gross. Right. So uh -huh. like he's not taking that much money. Sure, sure. Right? So in 1954, Don King shot a man named Hillary Brown in the back, about 150 yards away from one of his gambling houses. In the freezing early morning hours of December 2nd, 1954, a 23-year-old Don King heard his doorbell ring. When he answered the door, three men from Detroit busted in, waving guns, demanding King's money. Mm -hmm. So King slipped into a nearby room. Everyone's kind of cordoned off in the hallway. I'm so sorry. Is he being robbed or is someone saying like, you don't like this is now our territory? He's being robbed. Okay. Yeah. So he's being robbed. Mm -hmm. Everyone's in the hallway of this building. 
King slips into another room. He grabs a Russian revolver, pops out in the hallway, and then in classic TV gunfight fashion, both the group of men and King got off two shots apiece Mm -hmm. in this narrow hallway without anyone getting hit. So, so the, that really does happen in real life. You know, you'd be watching The Matrix and be like, oh my God, Neo's supposed to be the one he just let off a billion rounds and hit like three security guards. The Matrix. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the men freaked out. They ran out the front door yeah. down the snowy block towards their getaway car without any cash. They didn't mm-hmm. get anything. And Don King stood in the doorway of the building and fired a shot into the darkness, hitting 29-year-old Hillary Brown from behind, killing him. Ultimately, King pled self-defense, and the shooting was ruled a justifiable homicide. Mm -hmm. So King didn't actually serve any time for Hillary Brown's death. Mm -hmm. Now, on April 20th, 1966, Donald the Kid, which was what he was going by, (laughs) was power walking down Cedar Avenue at high noon with $2,000 cash in his pocket and an unregistered 357 Magnum in his waistband. What do you mean power walking? Is he working out? Yeah, he's just going, he's just like... He's getting his aerobics in? He's just happy, you know? At this point... Now, remember, he's the biggest numbers runner in Cleveland. He drove a Cadillac convertible and he owned this popular dance hall on 85th and Cedar Mm -hmm. called the New Corner Tavern. Um, And that club featured a bandstand with a brass section and folks like B.B. King Mm -hmm. would perform there. So it's like this banging ass club right hell yeah everyone loved going to this club it must be so fun can you imagine seeing bb king in in that time of his life it's huge it was a huge huge club about 15 blocks down the street from king's club on cedar avenue in an inner city section of cleveland stood another bar called the manhattan tap room so King walked out of the bright noonday sun and into the Manhattan tap room looking for a man named Sam Garrett. At 35 years old, King was a really big guy. He was around 240 pounds Mm -hmm. with this big personality, big time numbers racket. And in a place like the Manhattan tap room, he was also a big time celebrity. Yeah. Everyone knew who he was. Sure. So King spotted Garrett at the bar, already starting his drinking for the day, and approached him. Garrett worked for King, and recently King, who by all accounts is a total math wizard, right, Mm -hmm. had figured out how to cheat the odds of a popular numbers game that was based on the stock market. So he had figured out a way to make the odds really greatly in his favor Mm -hmm. after, you know, looking at certain numbers and stuff like that. That's cool. Yeah. So King had played the number 743 and won $600 off of Sam Garrett, which was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But Sam Garrett was avoiding him. He was not paying out the money, right? So Don King is running numbers and playing numbers? Yeah, you can play numbers. I mean, I know you can, but I would just think like if you're hella rich, you're not also just like winning, but maybe that's... Well, he rigged the game. Yeah. I mean, he knew how to play the right number. Yeah. So he's like, oh, cool. I'll just try to get some money off this guy. Mm-hmm, you know, sure. and $600 is a lot. That's yeah. not a little bit at the time. No, I guess. Why wouldn't you do that if you could? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Sam Garrett's refusing to pay or avoiding him. He's not paying out his debt. Mm-hmm. So King 
approaches Garrett and they start arguing at the bar. And that's when things get physical and the fight spilled out onto Cedar Avenue. So Garrett, Sam Garrett, was a drug addict. He had tuberculosis. He was missing a kidney at the time. And at this point in life, Don King outweighed Sam Garrett by about 100 pounds. So he's a pretty small guy. So King beat and pistol whipped the smaller Garrett in broad daylight in front of a large basically silent crowd nobody intervened right it's like sunny beating connie's husband's ass in front of everyone right and the the godfather yes exactly our references are banging today (laughs) we're so good the the godfather the matrix here we go baby our gen z (laughs) listeners are loving us so while this fight is happening in broad daylight officers bob tony and john horvath were driving by they're dressed in plain clothes and they're driving a squad car mm-hmm. so they drive by the manhattan tap room around 12 30 when they spotted this small man lying on the ground being kicked in the face by a large man wearing heavy boots now for bob tony the scene brought back memories for him because he had been attacked on this street on cedar avenue before mm-hmm. just a few years earlier 1961 when he was already a full-fledged officer on the force, Tunney was pistol-whipped on Cedar Avenue, a, bo- a block away from where King was now stomping Garrett to death. Mm-hmm. Tunney was beaten so badly in 1961, he had to get his face put back together with 72 stitches. Damn. So like, if you're thinking about the type of neighborhood it is, yeah, yeah. it's the type of neighborhood where someone almost pistol-whips to death an actual active police officer (laughs) in the middle of the street. Yeah, right, 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 right. right. So Tunney and Horvath pull the squad car up to the scene. They jump out, screaming at King to drop this bloody handgun and step away from Garrett. So King kind of slowly stands up. He turns, he places the gun on the hood of a nearby parked car. And when the two cops go to retrieve the gun, they kind of take their guns off of king yeah king turned wound back and kicked garrett in the head one last time as hard as he could as officer tony struggled to get the handcuffs over king's large hands king who at this point tony didn't know turned to him and said tony you don't have to cuff me i'm donald king he do his name yeah so unnerved tony put King in the squad car and turn his attention to Sam Garrett. Garrett had blood coming out of his ears and he kept repeating, I'll pay you the money, Don, before slipping into a coma. Oh my God. Now at the station, King claimed he attacked Garrett in self-defense, right? An echo of the first time he shot a man in the back running away from him, right? Sure. And that Garrett had jumped him at the bar after their confrontation about money. So according to King, he was driving to get his 357 Magnum registered like a good boy <laughs> and decided to just stop by the Manhattan tap room for a beverage. Uh-huh. And King said, they're at this bar. And after he started talking to Garrett about the $600, Garrett acted like he was going to pull a weapon out of his pocket. So mm-hmm. King actually... Didn't have his gun on him, he says, but I I was worried for my life. So I ran out to my Cadillac and got the gun under the backseat of the car. King's official statement was that the 130-pound Sam Garrett had pulled him 
out of his car <laughs> yeah. while he was trying to get his uh-huh, gun. Uh-huh. And then King, even though he got his gun, still was trying to walk away from the fight. So yeah. when King tried to walk away, he said Garrett then attacked him from behind. Yeah. Now, just for clarity, Garrett's pockets were empty. He had no weapon on him uh-huh. whatsoever. So yeah. there was no weapon on Garrett's side. For his piece, Sam Garrett had a punctured eardrum, a broken jaw, multiple skull fractures, and a clot from a massive brain hemorrhage. Oh, my God. He died in hospital (sighs) of severe brain damage five days after the attack. So essentially, he just kicked this guy to death. Yeah, right. In front of a huge group of people. (laughs) So police lined up four solid witnesses who all witnessed King's brutal beating of Garrett. But Mm -hmm. by the time of the trial on February 21st, 1967, Three of the witnesses refused to testify. And the last witness, who was a 53-year-old woman named Rosa Rines, who had seen the entire beating starting from inside the tap room, Rosa disappeared off the face of the earth. Oh, really? Right. So that was going on. The other thing that was going on is that Officer Tony now and Horvath were the only witnesses left. Uh And Tony just kept getting approached with bribes uh-huh. by King's associates, encouraging him to change his story to support yeah. King's whack-ass claim of self-defense. Right, right, right. Um, he says the numbers that were floated were around $10,000, which was a ton of money back then. Sure. And all of this stuff has this added level of stress, right? Because King was also super mobbed up. So we kind of talked about this. According to Jack Newfield's reporting, the FBI confirmed that King was kicking back profits to the Cleveland Mafia in return for protection in the 1960s. And the mob at that time in Cleveland was led by a man named John Scalise, Mm -hmm. who had ties to the Chicago outfit, right. right? That's Al Capone's gang. At the time, it was ran by Tony Accardo, so mm-hmm. it was like a few people down from mm-hmm. like, Al Capone, but right. it was still a very powerful outfit at the yeah. time. And also the Genovese family. From is, New York. Right, it's a big New York family. So take from that what you will, but yeah. Cleveland definitely had ties to some very strong people. Yeah. Also, shortly before the trial began, a man claiming to be a distant relative of Sam Garrett contacted the editor of the Cleveland Plain Dealer with some news. Is that newspaper? Yeah. Okay. It's like the big newspaper. Uh So this anonymous man said that King was walking around town bragging that he's already spent $30,000 on bribing witnesses (laughs) and that he'd also publicly made a display about making a $5,000 bet while he was at a Cassius Clay fight in Houston Uh that he would never spend a day in prison. Wow. The dude also had information on a recent shooting in the neighborhood in Cleveland. Yeah. A guy named Tracy Smith had recently been shot during alleged botched robbery. The caller said that Don King actually shot that guy because he had failed to get Rosa Rines to change her testimony. So after King shot Tracy, then he had his associates run Rosa out of town. Wow. So he gave them all of that information. Is the thought that Rosa was run out of town and not... Not kidnapped and murdered or something? Nobody said she was kidnapped and murdered, mm-hmm. but she nobody knew where she was. She's yeah. gone. She stopped going to work. She disappeared. She disappeared. Yeah. Wow. I hope she didn't get hurt. Yeah. So King's <sighs> trial lasted three days. Yeah. With officers Tony and Horvath as the sole witnesses. Four hours after final remarks, the jury returned a verdict of guilty for the charge of second degree murder, yeah. which is punishable by life in prison. Mm-hmm. However, 
Judge Hugh Corrigan had other plans. <laughs> After the verdict, Judge Corrigan held a private closed-door meeting with King's lawyers and emerged from that meeting having suspended King's life sentence pending a new trial. Eventually, despite the jury's verdict, Don King's charge was reduced to manslaughter, and he would only serve four years in prison for the murder of Sam Garrett. <laughs> so throwing this out yeah, here, yeah. Judge Corrigan was hella corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> so according yeah, to yeah. Jack Newfield's reporting, letters from an FBI field agent in the Cleveland office to J. Edgar Hoover basically said that the Cleveland mob often gave Corrigan obscene amounts of money. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that was yeah. like kind of... He's just officially on the payroll. Right. He's. It's like one of those things where they didn't have enough to charge him, but uh -huh. that's what people... That's what rats are saying. Right. Corrigan is the guy to watch. Right. right. So Don King goes to prison. He's there for four years. Mm -hmm. And he was released from Ohio's Marion Correctional Institution on September 30th, 1971. After his release, King returned to running the New Corner Tavern. And that's where his musician friend, famous R&B writer and performer Lloyd Price. He's mm -hmm. the guy who wrote and recorded Stagger Lee. That's like his big claim. How's that song go? Which one is that? Oh, I don't know, but it's famous. Okay. <laughs> it's like Stagger Lee. Da, da, da. <laughs> right. Great. So Lloyd Price, though, he really is like a famous guy, but he's just right. a little, he's more famous in like the 1950s. It's uh -huh. a little out of like my wheelhouse of what I know about R&B. Yeah. However, Lloyd Price was the guy who introduced Don King to Muhammad Ali. I have a question. Earlier you said that Don King was bragging that he's never going to spend a day in jail at a Cassius Clay fight. Yeah. So was he just there as a fan at the yeah. time? He just liked boxing. Yeah. And he was a big shot and big shots go to boxing matches. Right. And okay. Lloyd Price had known Cassius Clay and then Muhammad Ali yeah. for years. And so he's right. good friends with Lloyd Price. Lloyd Price performed at the New Corner Tavern. Uh -huh. And so I'm sure that they had something to do with going to that fight together. Sure. Okay. So briefly, Muhammad Ali started out as Cassius Clay, right? Right. Who began boxing at the age of 12. Uh, Muhammad Ali also won an Olympic gold medal in boxing at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. So he was a prodigy, right? Right out of the gate. Yeah. And Clearly going to change the sport from pretty much the moment he put the gloves on. Right. In 1964, 22-year-old Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston and gained his first heavyweight champion title. Yeah. He joined the Nation of Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ali shortly after that fight. And Ali went on to dominate the sport until 1967 when he refused to join the army after being drafted for the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And he refused on the basis of being a conscientious objector. So at that point, Ali was stripped of his title and convicted of violating the selective service laws by refusing the draft. So uh -huh. there's a specific group of laws. He violated them, title stripped, and... He didn't go to jail, but because of all of the appeals, he yeah. was like out on bail. Yeah. But he had like this open criminal, you know, right. case. Right. They put him through the ringer. Right. So Ali was unable to ob obtain a boxing license in any state 
until 1971, the year the Supreme Court overturned his conviction. And coincidentally, the same year Don King was released from prison. Mm. So after regaining his boxing license, Ali promptly lost his heavyweight title to Joe Frazier at what is called the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. So that's where Muhammad Ali was when he hooked up with Don King. Wow. So it was around that time that Don King got his spidey senses tingling about boxing promotion. Oh, yeah. King wanted to get out of the numbers racket and switch careers, and Lloyd Price, the singer, wanted to help. So Lloyd Price was good buddies with Muhammad Ali, and Price and King thought King could potentially use that contact, right, to launch a boxing promotion career. Well, I would say so. <laughs> it's like, hmm, I want to get into boxing. Oh, I'm friends with Muhammad Ali. Right. And that and, might be a leg up. And the Muhammad Ali who's looking for a comeback. Right. Right. Who mm -hmm. just had had this kind of traumatic, crazy four years where he wasn't able to box in yeah. the prime of his life and yeah. then had this huge Madison Square Garden fight and lost his title. Like yeah. the first big title fight, right? Right. So in 1972, just a year out of being out of prison, Don King heard of this local Cleveland hospital, it's called the Forest City Hospital, that was serving the black community that was in dire need of funding. Mm -hmm. So he got Lloyd to talk Muhammad Ali, who is obviously fresh off of getting his butt beat by Joe Frazier, into boxing a few exhibition rounds for charity. The event was... An <laughs> That's a hilariously slimy way to get in. I know. I mean, it did... Okay. So, I mean, I, it, okay. I want to hear the story. Sorry. So the event was an absolute banger, right? Uh -huh. Lloyd Price straight up got Marvin Gaye, Wilson Pickett, and Lou Rawls to do an R&B concert before the exhibition oh, event. Oh, hell yeah. Don King even hired guys to pretend to be paparazzi to meet Marvin Gaye at the airport so they could juice his ego up <laughs> before he got to this like decrepit arena where the event was being held. That's so great. Uh, they made $81,000 at the door, which is about $577 in today's money. $577,000 in today's money. Yeah. And it was the most at that time that a boxing exhibition had ever made in history. Well, it's more than a boxing ex exhibition. It's it's a Wilson Pickett and and Marvin Gaye concert. Like and Marvin Gaye at the top of like what's going on. Dude, that is cracking off. Like doing the concert before the conscientious objector. Right. You know, like Muhammad Ali's comeback boxing exhibition. I know. I mean, like the giving back to the community, yeah. just absolutely killing the it. The black community. I mean, it was just like it would this like black promoter right you know it, it's just it couldn't have been the venn diagram of this thing is a circle it's right? just the best thing ever yeah so obviously now king was in the mix yeah right his next big break came in 1973 i mean hold on also what? that is just crazy that that was his opening gambit that's his opening gambit <laughs> that's that's his opening gambit. It's That's like a year and a half good. after he got out of prison. That's so good. Damn. That so guy's a genius. His next big break came in 1973. Mm -hmm. Somehow, there's lots of rumors as to how this happened, but actually nobody really knows the story. Mm -hmm. Don King found himself riding in a limo through Kingston, Jamaica, 
towards a championship fight with reigning heavyweight champion Joe Frazier. Mm -hmm. So he's... He didn't promote the fight, right? Didn't have anything to do with organizing the he's fight. He's just kicking it in Jamaica. He's just already chilling with the big timers. So yeah. he's in this limo. They drive through Jamaica and they land at the boxing arena for what is called the Sunshine Showdown. Uh -huh. This is between George Foreman and reigning heavyweight champion Joe Frazier. Incredible. How fun would that be at the time cruising through Jamaica in a limo? With Joe Frazier? Oh my God. Or Don King for that matter. <laughs> Damn. So at this fight, yeah. George Foreman dominated Joe Frazier, uh -huh, right. knocking him down six times in under two minutes. Oh my God. Really? Yes. The first two minutes? Yes. The six? first two minutes. I have to watch that fight. What the hell is that? Winning by technical knockout in the second round after a member of Frazier's team stopped the fight. They were just like, no more. He Whoa, Foreman beat his ass like that? Really bad. Damn. So. Yeah. Don King's shady little ass may have come to the fight with Joe Frazier. <laughs> but he left with Foreman. But he left in George Foreman's limo. <laughs> You know, Don King is hilarious. He's like, all right, I'm going to set up these fake-ass paparazzis, get Marvin Gaye's ego going, that he shows. And then you said that the fundraiser was in like a decrepit yeah. thing. That is too much. And then he shows up with Frazier. Frazier gets his ass beat. Eventually, he lights Michael Jackson's hair on fire. <laughs> guys. Just setting a real strong baseline for a future of notoriety, man. right? Because like, and, and also something to remember: at mm -hmm. the time, all major boxing promoters were white, mm -hmm. uh, but most of the top fighters, if not all of them, were black. So yeah. there was definitely space for a talented black promoter. Yeah, and this is around the time Don started to also amp it up. Right, uh -huh. he wanted a big personality to outmatch the personalities of the fighters. Yeah, and that's when, with Lloyd Price's help, yeah, he developed his spiky afro, his tuxedos, nice, you know, and got himself poised to basically take over the scene. Oh, incredible! So did him and Foreman hit it off? Yes, I kind of cut you off when you said he left with Foreman. Yeah, so his big break into this uh -huh. was. He started working with the team that was managing Foreman, I believe, uh -huh. or the promotional team that was working with Foreman. Yeah. There was a team that he was working with, mm -hmm. and he was kind of uh, sent to deal with Foreman because Foreman had kind of a difficult personality. So he had a lot of face-to-face -face exposure with Foreman. God, you never know that now, him selling like AARP subscriptions or Medicare <laughs> things or whatever the hell he's doing on cable news these days. Yeah. Uh. So in 1974, uh -huh. King had been working with Foreman, right? And he was able to convince George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, and the government of Zaire, mm -hmm, known mm -hmm. now as the Democratic Republic of Congo, yes, to participate in a $14 million event Don King called the Rumble in the Jungle. So Don King, at this point, is about two years into his career. <laughs> and he managed yeah. to talk yeah. the government of Zaire to put up a $10 million purse This guy's in like, 1974. On my first time at the plate, I hit a grand slam. The second time at the plate, I'm going to hit a season's worth of grand slams in one swing. Yeah. So the fight was 
totally crazy. Yeah. If you ever want to watch a great fight, this is a great fight. 32-year-old Muhammad Ali is up against, I believe, 25-year-old George Foreman. Uh-huh. So it's already seems like an unmatched fight. Right. Well, Foreman's coming off of just beating the guy's ass who beat Ali's ass. Right. And he's a monster, yeah. right? At the fight, Muhammad Ali was a four to one underdog. Mm. They did not think he was going to do anything. Yeah. And he won his title back by knocking Foreman out in the eighth round in front of 60,000 people. Hell yeah. Huge upset. <laughs> yeah. And it's a knockout, not yeah, a technical right. knockout. Yeah, yeah, right, right, he right. knocked him out. <laughs> So then, fresh off the heels of that fight, in 1975, the next year, Don King put together the Thrilla in Manila, right? Yes. Another awesome fight. So it's a heavyweight championship match between Joe Frazier and reigning world heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali in the Philippines. So it's the rematch. It's the rematch. But not only that. Ali and Frazier had agreed to do a three-match deal for the title. Mm -hmm. So it was best out of three. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the thrill in Manila was the third and final bout. Each man had won a match before this bout. So the thrill in Manila was actually the tiebreaker. Whoa, I I I didn't know that. So the two men boxed 14 brutal rounds. Mm -hmm with Ali winning by technical knockout after Mm -hmm. Frazier's team requested to stop the fight. Mm. That particular fight had about 1 billion TV viewers worldwide. God damn. That's his second fight. So suddenly he's just like, oh, I've, I've, I've rewritten the Guinness book. It's now called the Don King book of my, (laughs) me being the best boxing promoter in the history of the sport. Isn't that wild? That's wild. So in 1976, the next year, our old friend, Judge Hugh Corrigan, <laughs> yeah. ran for circuit judge, and King got the reigning heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali, to campaign for him. Really? Yes. They recorded Muhammad Ali endorsing Corrigan and played it on all the black radio stations yeah. in Ohio. Ali said he endorsed Corrigan for helping out his old friend, Don King, mm. in an obvious-ass quid pro quo. So <laughs> yeah, like, right. what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Muhammad Ali's like, I mean, I can't consciously object to everything that's terrible in the world. <laughs> I think Don King also, I can't remember the quote, yeah. but I, he also invited the jury to go to one of the Muhammad Ali fights. Like oh, his really? Dime. From his... Yeah, from his murder trial. <laughs> Hell of years later. Yeah. Then, yeah. in 1983, Don King received a full pardon from the governor of Ohio for the murder of Sam Garrett. Whoa. Jesse Jackson and Coretta Scott King, among mm-hmm. many others, all sent in letters of support for King. And King, for his point, like, he did a huge press tour. Yeah. He was saying they wanted to, you know, police wanted to convict me because... I'm like this numbers kingpin, mm-hmm. but the it was obviously a case of self-defense mm-hmm. and they railroaded me and I should have never, you know, spent any time in prison. Mm-hmm. So he kind of got the last historical word, yeah. you know, in this murder trial. Yeah. But if you look at the facts of who he actually beat up, yeah. it's just his story makes no sense. Right. So, and then... Then how did you, like the story you told, like where did you get those facts? 
I got them from two places. Mm-hmm. Both of them are based around reporting from a man named Jack Newfield, mm-hmm. who just had, he's the preeminent person on Don King. Mm-hmm. There was a frontline documentary called Don King Unauthorized that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you can find it on YouTube if you're interested in watching this stuff. Yeah. It's really good. He also wrote an excellent book that goes a lot more in depth mm-hmm. called Only in America, The Life and Crimes of Don King. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's by Jack Newfield. So he was I mean, essentially embedded and he had a great relationship with Don King yeah. until they had a falling out. I don't want to get too far into it, but essentially during this time where he was this symbol of black power in the yeah. United States, there was a fight that was going on a heavyweight championship fight that was going to happen in Cape Town in South Africa during apartheid. Yeah. And people were boycotting the the fight. And so Don King said he wasn't going to do this fight. You know, he uh-huh. said, I'm not going to be participating, but he did low key participate and he got like a million dollars for. Oh, like doing he it. still profited off of a. Uh- apartheid era South Africa. Right. So he was like paying a lot of lip service for saying I'm anti-apartheid. I'm not going to participate in this bout. And then he totally made like a million dollars off this bout. (laughs) And so Jack Newfield Uh kind of was hanging out with him at this, you know, an event. Yeah. And (laughs) this is really great. It's in the frontline documentary. Don King is going off about how like he would never participate in South Africa. And he's doing his preacher thing about how he's so great. And Jack Newfield's like, well, what about the thousand, the million dollars that you got? Yeah. <laughs> and he just started screaming at him. <laughs> they revoked Frontline's press credentials. Oh, they wow. were like trying to you know, like beat him up in the hallway. It was really crazy. So where do they, where does he come down on this whole, like, um, you know, uh, everyone coming to defend Don King and being like, we're so glad that your record is now clean and you have the full pardon. And in fact, you were wronged. But according, but the story you told sounded like, Don King beat up what was essentially a small out of it man who was like ill and be- kicked him to death. Yeah. Right? All like of that brutally. stuff is true. That's the so truth. What is, so they weren't beefing about that. Don King was like comfortable with this guy writing a book about his life that included all of that. Some of this stuff was coming down around the same time. So mm-hmm. like they started off being tight and then as he reported more and more on mm-hmm. Don King, they became less and less tight until they yeah. had this falling out. But you know, basically, Jack Newfield credits Don King with just being an incredible showman mm-hmm. and just insanely compelling. Yeah. And so whatever he said goes. So if he says he was in, it was in self-defense and he was being targeted by yeah. police, like white police in Cleveland, yeah. then that really was the only narrative. Right. Uh, the other people were dead, Yeah. you know, who mm-hmm. were involved in that. Sam Garrett's not coming back. Right. He ran everyone else out of town and nobody cares what these like white cops in Cleveland yeah. have to say. Right. You know, like in the grand narrative of stuff, like he's out there on television being able to sow this narrative of how things happened. And that's been generally accepted. Right. But if you look at the actual autopsy reports (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like who Sam Garrett was, right. His story just doesn't make sense. Totally. And like his gun was covered in blood. So he had pistol whipped Sam Garrett, you know, like, yeah, right. It was just like way, way, way over the top. And the cops saw so much of what had happened. It was obviously, kicking a man who was basically unconscious. Right. Yeah. So after the rumble in the jungle, 
King was the king <laughs> of heavyweight championships. He yeah. had strong connections with all major contenders for the title. And he had also negotiated to own the television rights for most of their fights. So right. he really was positioned in this huge way. Right? Yeah. And that was kind of like a revolutionary move. Right. Yeah. Other promoters had never done that. He's done a lot of stuff. And we'll talk yeah. a little bit about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So Don King is also at the center of what is now known as the lost generation of heavyweights. So this is a group of 20 or so heavyweight boxers who fell under King's control in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So boxer Tim Witherspoon coined this phrase. Essentially, King controlled the heavyweight division at the time, right? In the 80s, King was the promoter for the heavyweight division. Right, which for the most part was like the biggest most popular part of boxing it is it's the most lucrative part of boxing it's right. like the biggest the biggest of the big i right? don't think that's true anymore but at the time it was yeah right. yeah so he's large and in charge and through his stepson carl acting as a boxing manager his own creative accounting and a bunch of horrifically unfair contracts king was able to const control heavyweight fighters from all angles mm -hmm. so we're gonna take this guy tim witherspoon as an example so witherspoon started out as a sparring partner for muhammad ali he was super talented and he caught king's attention in 1982 basically King promoted a fight for Witherspoon in Cleveland and Witherspoon pulled out at the very last minute on advice from his doctor. He had a really bad ear infection at the time. Mm -hmm. So King was really pissed and through his connections, he got the Cleveland Boxing Commission to suspend Witherspoon's license in Ohio. Oh, that's petty. So he's saying like, oh, he pulled out. He was saying, you know, he manipulated something. He had some idea of like how it wasn't in, like he was doing it intentionally, not that he was sick. Right? Okay. So King then goes to Witherspoon and says, you know, I can get this decision reversed mm -hmm. for you if you sign some ex exclusive contracts with me. So at the end of the day, Witherspoon was broke and he needed to fight. He needed to work. Yeah. So he signed four contracts without a lawyer, one of which was completely blank. And he agreed to let King stepson Carl be his manager. Mm -hmm. So a manager is supposed to look after the fighter's interests, right? The right. manager is negotiating prices and and fights and figuring out who they should be matched with and right. what's best for that person's career, right? The promoter is looking out after the best interest of the event. Mm -hmm. So they're always trying to get a big cut and they're trying to create a lot of money yeah. and they're also trying to put together the bouts that they think would be the best for them for the right. event, right? right? King controlled Carl. And the decisions and negotiations Carl made were in the interest of Don King. So it sucked to be Witherspoon. Mm -hmm. Carl got 50% of Witherspoon's earnings as manager, even though a split that high is actually illegal in boxing. So one of the four contracts yeah. that Witherspoon ended up signing, one was that there's 33% uh -huh. and then the other one, that's the one you show the boxing commission if yeah, you need yeah. to. And no. then the other one was 50%. <laughs> right. <laughs> Damn. So King got the suspension lifted as promised and lined Witherspoon up with a title fight, right? Witherspoon lost the title fight in a split decision to Larry Holmes. 
and he was paid $53,000 for the fight. Witherspoon found out later that another fighter with a different manager who had just recently also lost to Holmes was paid $350,000. Oh, damn. In the summer of 1986, Witherspoon was now the heavyweight champion of the world. And King set up a championship fight in the UK against a man named Frank Bruno. This should have been a massive payout for Witherspoon. Yeah. It's in another country uh-huh. in a title fight. They typically, you make a lot of money doing that kind of stuff. Right. It's like an international global affair. Exactly. So he was thinking maybe I'll make in the neighborhood of six to $700,000. Witherspoon defended his title, knocking Bruno out in the 11th round. After the fight, Witherspoon was celebrating with Muhammad Ali, who was there to see the fight. Yeah. And Muhammad Ali turned and whispered in his ear, I know you're not going to get all your money. So the fight generated millions of dollars. Frank Bruno, Mm -hmm. who lost, got $900,000. Witherspoon got a check for $90,000. Witherspoon was paid a $500,000 purse, according to Don King. Yeah. But because of their contract, 250,000 of it went to Carl. Right, who then kicked it up to Don. Right, and then the rest of the purse is where they deducted all the expenses for the trip. Oh, those dirty mother efforts. (laughs) So... And he was just doing this to tons of boxers. Right. So this is like an example of the type of stuff he was doing. It's the best way to kind of describe what he was up to at the time. So then uh, King put Witherspoon up against a guy called Bone Crusher, who Carl also managed. So Carl Mm -hmm. managed both fighters. Mm -hmm. So regardless of who won, they would would make money, right? right? Carl and Don King. Witherspoon lost his title in the first round of that bout. Mm -hmm. So at this point... He's broke, and he decides to file a $25 million lawsuit against the Kings for fraud and conflict of interest. After that, King blacklisted Witherspoon from fighting anyone he promoted, which was almost all of the top 10 heavyweight champions. So he's just controlled the whole thing. Yeah. And so, like, if you ever think about this idea of like him being shady, that's the type of stuff that he was doing. Right. So King's financial abuse and manipulation mixed with drugs, poor financial decisions, and general demoralization marked this whole generation of heavyweights in the 80s. Now, I'm not going to get into all the Mike Tyson stuff Uh because that's also its own epic kind of saga. I was getting that Tyson tingle. I need to know some Mike Tyson tidbits in this. Mike Tyson's, you know, obviously an incredible fighter. He, at the time, broke the record for being the youngest to ever win a heavyweight title. Mm -hmm. I I believe he won at 20. Mm -hmm. Mike Tyson was this loose cannon. He was in, like, juvie for a bunch. Yeah, yeah. And then he got out of juvie. He was taken under the wing of you know, a bunch of really great managers and coaches and coaches. So we yeah. had this management coaching team yeah. that led him through, you know, the paces to become this incredible fighter and they all died. They were just older dudes yeah, and right. they died. And by the time the last guy died, King kind of swooped in mm. and fully kind of put all of his tentacles around Mike Tyson. Yeah. At the end of their deal, Mike Tyson sued Don King for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Did he win? He settled out of court for fourteen million. Uh huh. 
And then after that, in 2003, they tried to reconcile. Yeah. So <laughs> this is the only story I'll tell. Yeah. Is that Tyson and King were going to reconcile. And after flying on Don King's private jet to Florida for this possible reconciliation, a coked up Mike Tyson got into King's Rolls Royce, yeah. which was driven by Tyson's form former chauffeur. Like Tyson was like, you took everything from right, me. Right. Now I'm on this plane that I paid for. Yeah. Now I'm in your Rolls Royce with my old chauffeur. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he felt hella jealous. So he just straight up kicked Don King in the head. <laughs> Effectively ending that partnership. <laughs> oh my God. So all in all, yeah. there's a lot of lawsuits, but I'll just yeah. talk about the famous one. Muhammad Ali sued Don King for $1.1 million. Larry Holmes sued him for around $2 million. Tim Witherspoon sued for $25 million. Did he my, get any money? How'd Witherspoon? Uh, it was kind of a bummer. He did. Yeah. He got he he settled out of court for kind of a nice chunk, I think, yeah. $3 million or yeah. something. And it was all gone in a year. He just oh, blew yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. It was just, there's just too much going on. Yeah, right. Mike Tyson sued him for $100 million. Terry, Terry Norris sued him for a ton of money. I think that was undisclosed, but he settled yeah. for 7.5 million. Mm -hmm. Lennox Lewis sued him for 285 million. Then Don King sued ESPN <laughs> for 2.5 billion <laughs> for defamation of character over a documentary that said he tried to break Larry Holmes's legs. Oh my God. <laughs> and he lost that because they were like, well, you did say it. Yeah. Like right. it's not defamation. If you said you were going to do that. I wonder if Don King's going to come after us. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, so he settled out of court for all the most prominent lawsuits, yeah. paying out tens of millions of dollars to yeah. various fighters. Damn. Um, and then this is a quote from Mike Tyson. <laughs> he said this uh, to ESPN. Okay. Quote, I found out that someone I believed was my surrogate father, my brother, my blood figure, turns out to be the true Uncle Tom. The true N-Bob. <laughs> The true sellout. He did more bad to black fighters than any white promoter ever in the history of boxing. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of that to me is the uh, like statement that I feel like I attach to Don King. Yeah. With all of his accomplishments and everything. I feel like that's where he has landed at the end of his history. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's 90 now and still alive. Yeah. And he has $150 million. You and know, he's, he's not selling grills and buying people's ears off. He's like, <laughs> got a bunch of grandkids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's like a big homie with uh, Trump, right? He was yeah, like a big endorser Trump of Trump. Trump a big N-word. <laughs> he got in trouble for that. He's pretty... Oh, yeah, I think Trump was like, cool. <laughs> he's like, you know how he is. He's like, like Don's crazy. <laughs> just a couple crazy Dons. Well, he did that, but then he also, he's just, you know, I mean, that's one thing that people say about him is he yeah. became the symbol of black power and yeah. the civil rights movement and like, yeah. you know, this incredible only in America kind of story, right? Yeah, yeah. But they are like, he played both sides of the fence. You right, know, right. That's, that's the idea is that he never really was political. Like, right. That he'll talk, he'll, he'll pump up. Donald Trump, he'll pump up Obama. He'll yeah. kind of do whatever he, and he kind of says, I follow the money. That's yeah, it. totally. He's like, like completely self-serving. Yeah. Yeah. And like bizarrely a genius. Yeah. 
I mean, he's a genius. I don't even know if it's bizarre, you know? Geniuses come in all No, I guess I, I, I just, no, I just mean the, the bizarreness comes from that niche yeah, that right. he filled. Yeah, right. You know, where he really did, I mean, all you have to say is like the rumble in the jungle and the thriller in Manila. It's like if he had just stopped there, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy changed boxing forever. You guys got to watch those fights. I'm yeah. serious. They're like really exciting, especially when sometimes there's ones with commentary that talk about the significance of what's happening. Oh, there's tons of great documentaries uh, about them and they're, everything. They're just really, they're really fun to watch. So I would super recommend that. Also, yeah. I just got to say, Jack Newfield kicks ass. Yeah. He has such in-depth interesting reporting if you're ever interested in don king or any of this kind of stuff yeah he just is the like the one who knows mm -hmm. um so again his book is called only in america the life and crimes of don king by jack newfield mm -hmm. i think it doesn't have a kindle it's only in print and but i would definitely recommend trying to get it off amazon or something muriel back to reading i know jeez <laughs> you know i don't love it <laughs> Someone give this girl a book and she'll begrudgingly read every single word. I read all of that yesterday and like, I was so grumpy at the end of the day. I was just like, I can't, I can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> we just like watched Pen15 in silence. Yeah, there was at one point I thought I had really like, because some of the stuff, you know, you're reading and, you know, you get kind of in depth and you're taking a lot of notes and yeah. you're cross-checking stuff and whatever. So you feel like you've, Oh my God, I read like 150 pages yeah. and I looked at it. I was like 19 pages. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? God bless you. Muriel. Uh, and as to you. Okay. Well, before we get knocked out, there's one final round Stop. left to this episode. Oh my God. <laughs> No. So embarrassing. I'm the one being embarrassing about sports, of course. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to give the listeners who aren't a part of our Patreon a little tiny sneak peek into what's going on over there. Don't know if you know this or not, but our podcast, Muriel's Murders, actually started as a little experimental sub episode of our other podcast, Hell in Your 30s. And for that Patreon account, we were like, let's try to do a murder podcast. And it ended up being really, really fun and eventually led to what is now Muriel's Murders. So if you do sign up for the Muriel's Murders Patreon, you get four vintage Muriel's Murders episodes as well as, as a handful of new ones to go along with the current podcast. But you can kind of hear what it was like when Muriel and I were first developing this podcast. It's super fun. And some of those episodes I wish I could do again because they are really, really wild. Uh, so yeah, check them out. They're really fun. Yeah. And we'll play you a little snippet right now to wet your beak. So here's a little sample originally recorded around Halloween of 2020. Warning, this true crime episode contains content related to murder. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Muriel. And this is your Hella in Your 30s Patreon, Patreon exclusive. Are you used to Nick and Muriel being friendly and laughing and having fun? Well, today you're in for a big-ass surprise, because we're going to be doing a true crime episode. So oh. if you're scared of murderers and psychos, then turn this off. <laughs> Here we go. 
I love murder podcasts. Mm. Uh, Nicholas, what? Uh, do I make you uncomfortable with that? Uh, yeah, I think it's really, really weird how much you love murder podcasts. But I get it. I think you know. I want you to be nice to me about this because I'm going to be doing something really dorky, yeah. and um, I did not write this very well. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing all those hours? Writing. <laughs> poorly. Yeah, I mean, all it's right, like great. I have a lot. There's a lot of bad sentences. I'm going to try to like riff a little bit uh-huh. and then stick to the script, but kind of like whatever. So I have to like yeah. get my brain into like doing that partially scripted thing. Yeah. Um, And then if you have any questions, pipe in. Okay, so I get to be a full active participant. And if you have opinions already. All right. Like great. if you think, no, but that, it was him, wasn't it? Well. The thing is, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Full asshole gaping. <laughs> oh, okay. Why are you saying that? I your mother, know. your grandmother listen to this. <laughs> Literally, it, there's no reason whatsoever. <laughs> I'm just trying to get into the spirit of it. I don't okay. think that that is the spirit of it on any level. <laughs> All right. All right. Ready? Yeah. This is the story of Daniel LaPlante. Is he the one who dies? <laughs> or is he the one that kills? This is him. He's the one who kills. Don't interrupt me yet. That's the intro. <laughs> okay. Play the scary music. Okay. okay. Full disclosure, there is some graphic stuff in here. So honestly, we love you. And if you are feeling sensitive to talking about murders, um, definitely you don't have to listen to this one. <laughs> yeah, right. Because there's some crazy shit and then it ends up kind of being really sad. So... Um, you know, just what do you say? Disclaimer? Disclaimer? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, turn this shit off if you don't want to hear about someone getting murdered. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. okay, good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, we are just, the, I mean, these podcasts are just gossiping about the real Will life you tragic let me do, endings. We of already people. talked okay. about all okay, of this. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> we're just going to gossip tra- about someone's. Are you okay, kidding? okay, okay, okay. We literally okay. just talked about <laughs> okay, this. Okay. I said, we're going into it. I okay. have a script. All right, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not helpful. I'm very excited. Okay. Are you? <laughs> all right, ready? Yes. This story is going to follow. Um, uh, a man named Daniel LaPlante. So he was born in Townsend, Massachusetts in 1970. So not much is known about his parents. I could not find anything. He has two siblings. He has a mom. And then he has a stepfather. And that's who he was raised by. Okay. Um, and by all accounts, the house was like super abusive. So it was like not oh, a great situation. Damn. There's a chance the stepfather could have been like sexually abusing him. Like the stepfather's kind of a monster. Uh-huh. Um the house was like super, super dirty. Uh-huh. Uh, Daniel had like learning disabilities growing up and like dyslexia. Mm-hmm. What kind of town was it? Ma- uh, Townsend, Massachusetts. Yeah. Small. Like, uh-huh. I think it's more of a like uh, working class, maybe like a middle class with like his family being on the poorer side, uh-huh. um, but like a sleepy town. Nobody locks their doors. Uh, okay. um, so that's like a that plays into a uh-huh. big part of like this whole story. Oh, God. So like nobody locks their doors. Muriel's murder. Muriel's Patreon murder. Patreon exclusive.
Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the interrupting her story, <laughs> editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Also, check us out on social media at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, and fan base. Our DMs are open. We would love to hear from you and you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com please rate and review muriel's murders on apple podcasts it really does help us grow tell the robots you love us Mm -hmm. and if you're listening on spotify you can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends would like our music is by mario castellini find him on instagram at castellini beats thank you to ryan and ryan at campfire media and if you are just jones in for more nick and muriel but without the murder podcast element check out our other podcast hell in your 30s wherever you're listening to this podcast right now podcast is that what i said no i know you just said podcast like a bunch of times oh okay all right well podcast (laughs) hey it's mia hey it's Allie, and we host the rom-com review podcast p.s i love rom-coms each week we'll have incredible guests come and discuss a new rom-com grand gestures, meet cutes, and of course, that elusive chemistry. Mia, what are you doing holding that giant boombox over your head? I'm hoping to win over listeners with this grand gesture. Take us back! Find a new episode every week and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Campfire Media. Wow, you're uh, still holding that boombox. Yeah, I've got great upper body strength. Thanks, CrossFit. Yes, I love Campfire.